This sermon is by Zach Mayen, youth pastor at New Hope Community Church. To know, to live and to share Jesus Christ. If Rebecca can put the, I forget which song I asked for, indescribable, right? This is uh, totally off the cuff, by the way, but sometimes worship just, it just really helps us. Um, And this particular song was helping me today, and I I wanted to kind of take a moment to, to address that, because some of you think people who are pastors are just like naturally not nervous when they public speak. They just like get up, they wake up every morning, and they're like, all I want to do today is public speak. That's not true. Actually, a lot of us, a lot of us actually hate public speaking. So some of you were like, how's it going, Zach? Everything's going to be good, right? Um, And some of you were like, why are you wearing, why are you all dressed up like that? So the little inside scoop here is if you get really nervous, okay, wear a jacket. Because then people can't see how nervous you are. You get what I'm saying? Um, but worship, worship has, has two main um, kind of consequences. That's a negative term, but results uh, that I see. Worship is, is for the Lord, obviously. We sing praises to the Lord. Um, but worship is also for, for us. And songs like this... Songs like this can be an encouragement to us. We can sing to ourselves and say, Lord, even though I know you put me in places where I am not comfortable and you give me tasks that I don't want to do, I know that you're powerful. And if you can do all of these things that this song says that you can do, then I know that you can help me through this. And the other thing is, and this, is, this ties into what we're going to be talking about today, the other thing is worship is is helpful for others. So sometimes you don't need to hear that message, but everyone else in the room does. And so I challenge you, um, just as I was challenged this morning as we were worshiping, I challenge you to, to use worship that way. Use worship to sing praises to the Lord and thank him for what he's able to accomplish, but also use worship to encourage yourself and others um, when you need encouragement. As many of you know, um, Rebecca's grandmother, Eleanor, passed away on May 7th, and her funeral challenged me in a number of ways. I had never attended a funeral before, but I would imagine that my reaction is no different than most, reflective and thoughtful. I'm going to read parts of her obituary to you today um, and and then discuss it and incorporate some scripture and discuss that too. Eleanor, daughter of Dutch-German immigrants Bernard and Gerda and wife to Joseph, passed away in her sleep May 7, 2017. Her family agrees that her unwavering faith was the pillar around which she lived her life. Her children, Ruth Ann and Mark, passed that Christian foundation onto their children as well. Her grandchildren, Joshua, Naomi, Esther, and Jonathan, have fond memories of her cooking delicious, savory German recipes 
telling stories of her times as a teacher, going to the beach with her, as well as teaching several of them chess, mill, and connect four. Eleanor was a diligent student, despite being bedridden for many of her early years due to rheumatic fever. She completed her assignments diligently with a tutor, studied a lot, and was admitted to the highly competitive Queens College for free. She earned her Master's of Teaching and became a teacher. Eleanor met Joe on an excursion with her friends at Word of Life Christian Camp in 1956 in the lunchroom. Two years later, they were married. Eleanor also returned to her passion of teaching by helping people complete their GEDs. She was able to be a positive influence to many of her students, give many of them hope and inspiration, and share the driving force in her life with those that asked her how she could be so happy all the time. Eleanor will be remembered as a woman who loved the Lord and solely relied on faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to enter heaven and live forever with God. It is this assurance that we know she lives with our Lord and that we will be re reunited again with her. Throughout the various services in Eleanor's honor, the sentiment was repeated by everyone that Eleanor was a godly woman. It struck me that Eleanor had lived a life that was admirable for other believers and could serve as a model for us. I went home still contemplating and considering exactly what it was about Eleanor that made her such a godly role model. After a while, I concluded that her life left a legacy of unity. I would like to take some time today to consider what a legacy of unity is and how we can claim our legacy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for allowing us this time of worship and fellowship to draw us close to you. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word today. Lord, please speak through me to edify your church. Help us to grow closer to you and to each other as we listen to your word today. In your son's name, amen. Our main text today is Ephesians 4. Bear with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts, gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine or teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, anger, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's quite evident from Ephesians 4 that Paul is emphasizing oneness and unity on a number of levels. Starting in verse 4, Paul emphasizes the most important unity, the unity of the Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's very clear in saying that there is one Lord, one spirit, and one Father. We are monotheistic, meaning that we have one God. As much as the Trinity is confusing to many, Paul states it as clearly as possible that the triune God that we believe in is one God, existing in three distinct persons. This is a basic tenet of our belief as Christians, but it is the foundation to living a life, uh, living a legacy of unity. Our creator, whom we were made in the likeness and image of, is one. God himself is the greatest example of unity we can possibly imagine. And to this day, we are still wrestling to comprehend the complex relationship that exists within our triune creator. Wayne Grudem defines the doctrine of the Trinity in his systematic theology as God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. In another text by Millard Erickson, Erickson explains that in the doctrine of the Trinity, we encounter one of the truly distinctive doctrines of Christianity— among the religions of the world, the Christian faith is unique in making the claim that God is one, and there are three who are God. Although it seems on the surface to be a self-contradictory doctrine, 
and is not overtly or explicitly stated in Scripture, nevertheless, devout minds have been led to it as they sought to do justice to the witness of Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is crucial for Christianity. It is concerned with who God is, what he is like, how he works, and how he is to be approached. Erickson could not be more right in his stance that the doctrine of the Trinity is crucial for us as Christians. And it is especially crucial to learning how to live a legacy of unity. Our God is three persons, and yet they are one God. There could not be a better example of of unity. The implications of a triune God are endless, and yet our Lord did not stop there. Our God has offered us to be united with him. So not only is our God three persons, but united in one God, he has called us and asked us to be a part of that relationship. We are invited into a relationship with Christ that is so deep and so intimate that Paul actually says in the letter to the Romans that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 to 12 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death, like his, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection, like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, our body ruled by sin, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Paul's using baptism as a metaphor for unity with Christ. When we choose to follow him, By believing in Christ, we are immediately and automatically united with him in his death and resurrection. We, as sinners, deserve the death that he suffered. He, as our victor, has endured the punishment that we deserved. And not only that, but he overcame the punishment of the grave and rose again. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, we become united with him in his victory. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, or in other words, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. If any of you have never taken the step of trusting Christ and asking him to forgive you for your sins, maybe contemplate that today. If you do take that step, or you have already, the results are better than anything that this world could ever offer. Ephesians 1.5 actually says that God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, meaning he, he knew, he planned to adopt us. David Platt, the author of the book Radical, has a great perspective on our adoption 
based on his experiences adopting a child. And he shares a little bit of that in a video clip that I had intended to play for you. Um, but because of the soundboard and, and whatnot, I can't play the video, but I'm going to hold my iPad up to the mic and we're going to listen to him, okay? My wife and I struggled for years to have children. The Lord led us on a journey of adoption, put a map on the table and said, Lord, we're, where are you leading us to adopt? And he led us internationally, the country of Kazakhstan. I don't even think I knew Kazakhstan existed before that process, but after months of praying, we put in an application to adopt a Kazakh child. And I remember somebody we run across, we told them we were adopting a child, and their first response was a real one. No, no, a plastic one. We're going to put it on our mantle and look at it. Yeah, of course we're adopting a real child. So there's a variety of things you don't say to parents who are adopting, and that would be, I think, at the top of the list. So we're walking through this adoption process, which is long and grueling in so many ways. Some of you have been there. Forms, fingerprints, home studies, background checks, physicals. We were trying to meet a particular deadline and had a physical at one point that uh, we, had to, we had to get checked off on. And so we went to the doctor together and everything was going smooth. My wife and I were there until we got to the eye chart deal. And I still maintain that the, the, the lighting in this hallway was dim. But uh, I went up first and so she, she said, you know, cover one eye and start reading. And I mean, I got maybe a, two rows down and I started struggling. And I started thinking, oh, I can't, I can't do this. I can't miss this. We're going to miss our deadline. It'll set us back. And so I'm, I'm stressed out. She can tell I'm getting stressed out, a little flustered. And she said, well, why don't you try the other eye? I said, okay, I'll do that. But in my nervousness, I've been pressing down so much on this eye that when I took it off, like, everything was blurry. I couldn't see the top letter. And, and I'm like, oh, no. And she says, sir, why, why don't you step aside and why don't your wife come up and do it and then you can try again. I said, all right, I'll do that. So I'm over here trying to get my eyes like... Right, and then finally, uh, I, I get my eyes right, and my wife's still going, and so I look down and I, I memorize the letters. <laughs> so I step back up, you know, you know, and just start acing the thing. And I'm like, ma'am, I could do this with two eyes closed if you want. <laughs> so check that off. Uh, Went through this whole process over, over a year, and then one day, sitting at a computer, received this email with a picture of a 10-month-old little boy. And six years ago, this last month, day after Valentine's Day, we walked into an orphanage in this small, obscure city in Kazakhstan, and we held this baby boy in our arms. Not long thereafter, he became our son, Caleb. And I, I share that with, with you, so picture here. See a parallel with adoption here. Adoption begins with a parent's initiative, not with a child's invitation. Before Caleb was even born, before he was ever abandoned in that children's hospital in Kazakhstan, he had a mom and dad who were planning to adopt him. And while he was lying alone at night in an orphanage in Kazakhstan, he had a mom and dad who were working to adopt him. And one day when Caleb was placed in the arms of mom and dad, he had no idea all that had been done completely apart from him to bring him to that point. This orphan boy became our cherished son, not because he pursued us, but because we pursued him before he was ever born. So in light of that picture, I remind you of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, Christian, just feel this. Right there in your seat. Some people say, well, I don't know about this predestination. I'm not saying I can explain this, but I am saying I don't want to take Ephesians 1 out of the Bible. Just feel this Feel this right where you're sitting before the sun was ever formed, before a star was ever put in the sky, before mountains were put in the land and oceans poured out between them, before any of that. God Almighty on high set his sights on your soul. And he purposed to save you from your sin. I just think that's such an awesome personal explanation of adoption. And you can feel the emotion in his voice. And I I truly believe that our God loves us immensely more. Like indescribably more than that. And the, the amount of time that it took for them to go through the process of adopting. He said it was like a year or so. God, God has been planning your adoption since before the earth was formed. Romans eight sixteen to 17 actually goes as far as to say that the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. As co-heirs, with Christ, we can definitely say that we have unity with Christ. And there are a number of benefits to that. First, we now have an intimacy with the Father that we could never have before. And we accepted, when we accepted Christ as our Savior and, and we were adopted as a child of God. We can approach him directly without fear or timidness. We can pray to him, we can weep to him. Shout to him and joyfully praise him because when he sees us, he sees his child who was buried and resurrected with Christ into newness of life. The second benefit is regarding the adoption itself. Roman adoptions, I don't know, how many of you, like, you know about Roman adoptions? Anyone? No? Okay. So, um, Roman adoptions, which this, the whole metaphor was, about were legal transactions made to preserve the family line. So the child would be in every way removed from his old life and considered one and the same as the adoptive parent. Roman families were generally considered as one entity rather than individuals. Okay? And that's generally at that time period they considered the community instead of individual. We now don't understand that because our society is rather individualistic. But, but try to think that way, okay? Think family unit, okay? So Roman families were generally considered as one entity. And the result of this unified, unified view of the family unit was that the term heir was used as a present tense term, even before the parent died. So in our modern society, we, we don't fully grasp that because when you think of an heir, you think that somebody died. 
and then the, the person gets an inheritance, right? And it's not really worth anything until you get the inheritance, right? But in, in Roman society, heirs were heirs from birth. So the moment that the person was born, they were that heir. And their inheritance was always theirs. An adoptive child is no different. Their inheritance was theirs from the moment that the parents legally adopted them. Now try to think of the implications of this for us. For us, it's astounding. Not only did God choose to adopt us before we were even born, meaning that we were always going to be heirs of our eternal inheritance, we also, from the moment of belief, were and always will be current owners of our eternal inheritance. Our eternity is ours now. Our victory over sin is now and always will be. And it's not going anywhere because it's already attained. This is an awesome and powerful sentiment. And I know that many of you are probably encouraged by it as I know I am, but I also know that many of you are are very critical thinkers and there are some skeptics out there. And you'd like to remind me that the end of Romans 6.12, that portion, says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And this surely sounds as if we still have an active role in our victory over sin, right? I know some of you were going to pull me aside afterwards to, to tell me that anyway. So I figured I'd address it now. The answer to those skeptics out there is, yes, we do have a role to play in our victory. But the encouraging part is that no matter our successes or failures in conquering our sinful desires, we already have victory because we are heirs with Christ in his victory now. It is as it was for Abraham when the scripture says in Genesis fifteen six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Our belief in the Lord and Christ's sacrifice for our sins is what makes us righteous. And even if we make stupid mistakes like Abraham, who, might I add, lied to Pharaoh about his wife being his sister, which we all know opened a whole can of worms. And if you don't know, check it out because it's a big mess up. We are still declared completely righteous by God because we believe in and trust him. Of course, I do not want to negate the emphasis that Paul's, Paul's placing on letting sin not reign in our mortal bodies. So let's take some time to consider that for a moment. When we believe in Christ, we are justified, or in other words, declared righteous. But we don't immediately act righteously afterwards, right? We are completely righteous. However, we are still living in a sinful world and our fallen bodies. And as much as we believe and know we are righteous, we still must battle the sin in our lives. But thankfully, Christ has offered to help with this when he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the purpose of the yoke, for those of you who didn't know what a yoke was, it was meant to spread the burden of whatever you were pulling between both animals. And in our case, Christ is saying that he will pull all the weight. And all we have to do is stand beside him and, and keep going with him. All we have to do is follow him. 
Do you ever notice that when you take your eyes off the Lord, the burden feels heavy and you start to fall into your old habits and old sins? As soon as you begin to walk with the Lord again, your burden feels a little more bearable and you can cast aside your sinful desires more easily. And this is what unity with Christ is all about. As I found myself sitting in my grandmother-in-law's funeral, I was beginning to see the impact of a life lived in unity with Christ. The result was amazing. I reflected on that as we left the service and drove home. And in the weeks following, I continued to consider the beauty of the service and the joy I felt there. And I realized that there were many, many great outcomes to a life lived in unity with Christ. But one that really stuck with me was the result that it had on the body of Christ, his bride, the church. You see, Eleanor truly lived a life in service to the Lord, and part of her service was in sharing the gospel and encouraging other believers. The natural effect of this was to unify the body of Christ, to bring people together. The results of that were truly inspiring. As as we sat in this small Lutheran church in Flushing, New York, and looked around, we saw many different people from different walks of life who had come to celebrate the life and death of a very godly woman. At one point, Rebecca, Rebecca and her cousins actually commented to me that they had never seen this many people in this church before, ever. And they've been going there. Rebecca told me she's never missed a Christmas at this church. Okay, so think, think Christmas service. You all know, like, more people come to church on Christmas, right? So that's probably the most amount of people that would have gone to that church. At her funeral service, there were more than that. It's incredible. Of course, it's, it's very fitting that Eleanor was a devout Lutheran woman and her service was a Lutheran service. To many of us in this room, we probably would have felt a little out of place. But as we moved through the liturgical Lutheran service, I realized how much of it was designed to unify the body of Christ. We prayed together in unison. We sang together in unison and proclaimed the words of the Lord together in unison. How very fitting for a woman who had spread the love of Christ and united so many of his members throughout her life. And the service reminded me of the conservative Baptist church that I grew up in. The recitation of creeds, the call and response, and the Lord's Prayer were among the many reasons why I felt reminiscent and also a great sense of unity. Albert Eimer is the president of Hood Theological Seminary, and he made some comments that are are helpful to this matter. I'm just going to read you a few, a few of his comments. Saying the creeds in worship links us to the church of past ages and connects us to the worship of future ages. Only a narrow stream of death separates us from the saints now in heaven. And God spans that. Using creeds in worship gives the sense that God's future is already now. Saying creeds in worship makes me feel so at home among believers, no matter where I am. So Eimer has studied and pastored churches throughout the Caribbean and the eastern United States, and he's moved in Anglican, British Methodist, United Methodist, and he's now in African Methodist Episcopal Zion circles. Okay, um, that's a mouthful. And he, he often is worshiping in Presbyterian and Lutheran churches, and he explains that including historic creeds in worship adds theological depth and integrity to services. Creeds give biblical authority to worship because the creeds are based on the Bible. The biblical authority of creeds, reinforced by reciting them together in worship, 
safeguards thoughtful worshipers from being led astray by every wind of doctrine. Many of our churches are in hot debates between freedom of choice and freedom of life, between heterosexuality and homosexuality, and these are not tenets of faith. They're not the real things that make us Christian. The creeds help us focus on the bigger things that bind us together instead of focus, focusing on those news-catching things that we're using to fight each other to death. What is particularly interesting for me is that as I read this article, I found myself passionately agreeing with Eimer. And I didn't know much about him or Hood Theological Seminary, so knowing how um, critical sometimes you all can be, I thought, I need to look up this guy and make sure that I know where I'm getting my facts from. And um, what struck me after researching Hood was how very different the seminary's stances were from my own and probably from many of yours. But after considering that for a few moments, I realized that that only brought more meaning to what he was saying. As different as his views are from mine or yours, we are still united as brothers and sisters in Christ by our core belief in the gospel and belief in our triune God. It was the uniform recitation of creeds, prayers, and scripture in Eleanor's traditional Lutheran funeral service that remind me, reminded me um, and the, the diverse room of believers the, the core beliefs that united us. It was in this very encouraging and optimistic funeral service that I was reminded of Ephesians 4, which is what inspired today. Um, and so I'm going to read parts of that and, and see if you can pinpoint exactly why um, I was making those connections. So um, Ephesians 4, 2, um, part of 2 through 5, says, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then in 11, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. 15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Then the latter part of 28 says, Share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So don't get me wrong, the uniform reading of creeds or communal prayers can become monotonous and ritualistic. But the reason why we started doing it in the first place was to remind us of what unifies us. You see, when we were adopted and made heirs with Christ, we were also made brothers and sisters with our fellow believers. We each are equal, and our triumphs and shortcomings are shared. Our successes and failures are the church's successes and failures. It is therefore each of our jobs to encourage one another and to strengthen one another with biblical truth, prayer, and fellowship. And now I have a, a little challenge for you, okay? So 
I need anyone that wants to participate in this challenge to pull out their cell phone, okay? If you have a cell phone with you. Um, and in a few minutes, I'm gonna ask Rebecca to put something up on the screen. And I want you to take a look at it. It's, it's a part of it, but I want you to take a look at it and, and try to decide what it is. And I want you to, to text me. This is my phone number. I have my phone right here. I want you to text me your name and what this is that's on the screen. Don't just get ready. Put the phone number in your phone. You can get ready by putting your name in the text message so that way you're just ready to go. What you will win is either a donut or pretzel from the table in the back, okay? I will buy it for you, all right? Is everyone ready? Rebecca, if you want to put, put it up on the screen. First one, let's go. I'm waiting for it. Oh, joke. Apostles Creed. I got you. Uh, donut or pretzel? Done. I'll buy it for you at the end. So the Apostles' Creed, uh, Joe said, is, is correct. And um, it's one of a number of creeds written over the years, and it was written to provide a synopsis of the teachings of the apostles with brevity and simplicity so that one could do as First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And it was eventually used at baptism so that when people were first come to Christ, they could, they could recite this creed as a procl- proclamation of what they believed and, and a commitment to, to the core tenets of Christianity. And at this time, if, if you feel comfortable, um, please read aloud with me the Apostles' Creed as a means of encouragement to one another and worship to our Lord. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. How many of you have done that before? Okay. How many of you, you've never seen this before? This is, oh, good. How many of you have not done it, but you've seen this before? Okay. A couple people. Um, I don't know about you, but I find those words extremely encouraging. And I would hope that all of you would as well, because this is why we're here. These are the core beliefs from the early church fathers written around 140 AD. So Martin Luther believed these words. John Calvin believed these words. Billy Graham believed these words. And Eleanor, my grandmother-in-law, believed these words. Unlike the other folks, however, Eleanor was not a famous reformer, preacher, or theologian. Eleanor was a schoolteacher, a wife, a mother, a friend, and a neighbor. She was just a normal person, just like any one of us in the room. And what made her stand out was that her love for the Lord was infectious. So infectious that her children learned to love the Lord, and their children learned to love the Lord, 
and her friends and her children's friends and her neighbors and her church were all encouraged and brought closer to Christ because of her potent love for the Lord. Eleanor left a legacy of unity. She was united with Christ, and her unity with Christ helped her to unify Christ's bride, the church. And that's my challenge for you today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Let your love for the Lord penetrate your hearts so that when you sit at home and when you are at work or school, you cannot help but to share the love of Christ with your spouse, your children, your friends, and your neighbors. And as you grow in your love for the Lord, continue to walk with him, letting the Holy Spirit guide you and help you as you put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you live this way, I am certain that one day some grandson or daughter-in-law will sit at your funeral thanking God for the legacy of unity that you left in this world. And that's my challenge to you. I'd like to close in prayer. Um, and if you don't mind reading the Lord's Prayer with me in closing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.